Are you ready to hear a word from the Lord? I'm ready. I pray that the Lord will speak to me. This is not a one-way communication. This is a this-way communication. I pray that God would speak to us this morning. Friends, I have a question to you um, as we are wrapping up the series on the Gospel of John. Imagine that you get the news that you have only four weeks to live. Just take a moment and imagine that you get that week, that news this week. What would you do? What are some things you would change or fix in your life? What relationships would you try to heal before your departure from this world? What are the people you would choose to spend time with before you depart? What would you say to them? How would you serve them? What memories would you like to leave behind in the last four weeks of your life on earth? In some way, this is what Jesus is doing in John chapter 21. Now imagine that you're writing a biography of a famous a figure in our day today. You choose whatever name you want to think about. And he's got just a little time left. Days, weeks. And he does a number of visits and visits friends and family and does a, lo- a number of things as a, the last things he does on, on his life here on earth. And of all the things that he does in, these, in this last few days of his life, you get to choose only one experience that you'll record in his biography. Only one thing you'll put in his biography. Of all the things he would do, which one would be the most significant so that you could write it down so that generations after his departure will remember the details? In some way, dear friends, this is what John is doing with us in this last chapter of the gospel. John 21, he reports to us one of the many appearances that Jesus had before his departure to his father. But which one will he write about? Which is the most significant conclusion to this gospel, which aimed to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king, the king chosen by God for his people? Which events of Jesus' last days on earth should be mentioned? Well, let's open our Bibles. John chapter 21. If you're using a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 943. 943. We have spent 23 sermons over this gospel, and today we are approaching its end. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. 
I am going out to fish, Simon Peter told him. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with the fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you had just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he, had, he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
This is a disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for us. This was the completion of the Gospel of John. Let's now go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to give us His Holy Spirit so that we might understand these words. Would you bow with me in prayer? Almighty and gracious God, we are thankful that You give us Your Word. Even this morning, we have heard it in our years. But Lord, we confess that without the presence of Your Holy Spirit, without His work in our hearts and minds, we could not understand it. We could not comprehend its significance for us. So therefore, we pray, we ask, would you send us your Holy Spirit in fresh ways so that we may hear your word, understand it, and follow it. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Chapter 21. It's the end of the gospel. This last chapter is ultimately about Jesus' appearances in his post-resurrected body to his disciples. Actually, verse 14 tells us this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So apparently, this was an important element of the resurrection story. Actually, if you look at verse 12, there's an interesting detail says that none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, stay and think for a moment at this verse. It implies that Jesus' physical appearance may not have given away that he's Jesus. For they wanted to ask him, who are you? But they dared not ask him this question. They knew it was the Lord. But this time their knowledge was based not on seeing the marks of the cross on his hands. This time their knowledge was based on seeing once again the penetrating power of Jesus' word. We will see for the last time in this gospel the resurrected Christ and the penetrating power of his words as he seeks to do three things this morning. His words turn failure into success. His word examines the heart, and his word is a call to dying. Let's look at the way Jesus presents himself, the way Jesus reveals himself in this post-resurrection body to his disciples by showing the penetrating power of his word. The first point I'd like for us to look at is that his words turn failure into success. What is unique about this third resurrection appearance? What is unique about it? Clearly, it's another instance when Jesus will prove that he has truly resurrected. Uh, but it does so in the context of the disciples' fishing. Now, why is Jesus making this third appearance in the morning's, uh, morning hours of a fishing trip? Just think for a second of all the things Jesus has done to appear to his disciples. Matthew says this was the third. When they were all, or most of them, were together. 
What was significant about this fishing trip? Why would Jesus show up on a fishing trip? Now, we don't know if this fishing trip was an act of um, going back to their business. When Peter said, let's go back to fishing. We don't know. Some commentators think that Peter is going back to his old trade. We don't know. Others might say that this was just a way to go and get some food. That's a possibility. Others say it might have been just a way to get out. They've been locked in their rooms for so long, and this was a way to go out and fish, just to relax. We, honestly, we don't know the motivation why these disciples went back to fishing. But the point is that the resurrected Jesus meets them after a long night of fishing. And what's significant about this fishing trip is that it was unsuccessful in catching any fish. Look at verse 3, how it ends. But that night, they caught nothing. It's in this setting that Jesus' third resurrection appearance happens. It's in the middle of their failures, in the middle of their lack of success, in the middle of their frustration. How amazing that the resurrected Christ would choose to appear in that kind of a setting. Now, verse 4 tells us that the disciples didn't recognize Jesus at first. They didn't know who the man on the shore was until they saw his power. This unrecognized man on the shore commanded them to throw their net on the right side of the boat, and the result was that they were not able to haul in the net because of the large number of, of fish that they caught. Now, somebody from the shore telling the people in the boat who had tried to fish all night long just to make one change, change the net from the left side to the right. Just that. And catch an enormous amount of fish after not catching anything all night long. That was pretty powerful. That was pretty miraculous. Verse, tell, verse 7 tells us, then, when they saw that, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. It's this, by this great miracle of fish, of catching fish, that the resurrected Jesus revealed himself to these disciples. But look at what else Jesus does in this miracle. He not only causes this miracle, but also prepared breakfast for them on the shore. So when they pull their boats, verse, seven, uh, verse 12 says, come and have breakfast. Now imagine Jesus. He knows where his disciples are. He knows that they haven't caught any fish. He knows that they've been toiling all night long. Here's Jesus after a night shift of fishing, he awaits for them on the shore with breakfast. As far as we can tell, this is the only passage we have in the Gospels where we see Jesus being a cook. Where we see Jesus actually preparing the food. 
I think that's why Baptists love food. We just take it from Jesus. We love preparing food and eating it. And it's not just any kind of food. Notice what Jesus does. First of all, he has fish. And then he asks for fish. This is the first potluck. This is the first potluck we have in the Gospels. That's why we do potlucks here at Parkers Baptist Church. We bring food together. We eat together. But here's the point. Jesus appears to his disciples in this way, by this miraculous catch of fish, and by Jesus awaiting on the shore with food already prepared, and invites them to bring their fish, even though Jesus has his own fish ready for them. Why? Why? Why is Jesus' third resurrection showing up in this way? Jesus appears to his disciples in their failures and turns their failure into an abundance to show these disciples what he taught them hours before the crucifixion. Remember in chapter 15, Jesus taught them that apart from me, you can do nothing. This principle is now made visible to them in the act of fishing. And it's not a coincidence that it's in this realm of fishing that the resurrected Jesus shows himself to be the source of their success. Do you remember what Jesus told these disciples when he first called them to follow him? To be a follower of Jesus means to be a disciple maker. To be a follower of Jesus means that you are a disciple maker. And Jesus gave a picture of what that disciple making looks like. Do you remember what that picture was? Jesus told Peter and many of his disciples, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the last event that John records in this gospel is Jesus' third resurrection appearance in the context of fishing, in the context of catching no fish, to prove that he alone is the one who makes their fishing successful. It's the, to make the point that he alone and his words have the power to bring the fish into the net. Oh, friends, just a few days prior to this appearance, Jesus told when he appeared to his disciples, and we have that story in chapter 20, the first time Jesus appeared to his disciples, one of the things he told them is, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This was the disciples' commission into the world. And now Jesus, in the act of fishing, shows up to these disciples once again that he alone is the one who will make their fishing successful. How often, friends, do we think of our gospel ministry and we feel like we haven't caught anything? How often is it that we look at our lives and we don't see the fruit? We don't see the results. Even though we might have toiled all night long. Do you ever feel this way? Where do we turn? What should we look for? I think this passage teaches us that we should look for the voice of the man on the shore. And ask for the Lord to give us instructions. What is it we need to do? And plead with him in prayer 
that the power of His Word might bring the results. How comforting to know that what makes their fishing a success is not their experience. It's not their boat. It's not their nets. It's not their bait. It's not even their perseverance through the night. What makes their fishing a success is that they listen to the man on the shore who alone had the power to bring in the results. Now, just imagine with me for a moment. What would have happened if the disciples had not listened to the instructions given by the man on the shore? After all, what if these disciples just ignored the instructions? How would a man on the shore know better where to throw the net? He hadn't been fishing. He was probably sleeping all night long. And he just shows up and now wants to give instructions to the disciples who worked all night long. But these men somehow, I don't know how, they just followed the instructions, only to realize that the one who commanded them, who gave them this advice, was the one who had power to command the fish to come to the net. It was the risen Christ. That's the power of following the instructions of the risen Lord to us 2,000 years later. These instructions are given in this book we call the Bible. Oh, friends, it is as we look forward and look into these instructions that we have power, that we have hope that His power might work efficiently and bring in the results. I love to, uh, to read to you a few words from a, an article that I just read this week um, in an article entitled, or Is Scripture Enough? Jonathan Lehman says the following, It's tough believing that Scripture is enough for building and leading churches. The old man, in parenthesis, the old man in us is continually tempted to build our churches on other things, things we can see and measure. We want to rely on marketing research, personal charisma, good music, force of personality, and other natural devices. It's fine to rely on what the eye can see in many areas of life. But Christian ministry is about supernatural change. Paul observes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Trusting God's Word and Spirit to build our churches is an act of faith. Faith in God, faith in His Word. And such faith is not natural even for the Christian. It's supernatural. God must give it. And he, quote, he, he ends this paragraph by quoting a verse from Jeremiah 23. It's not by word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. That's the way God describes His Word. And here's now this man on the shore giving a, an apparently superficial advice. Throw the nets on the other side of the boat. But in that moment, it's like the fish just heard his voice. The voice of the one who made him. And they go to the net. Friends, we as a church, we need to learn and grow in trusting that Christ alone and His Word is the one 
who builds his church through his spirit. Yes, we toil. Yes, we go out fishing. But there's so many times when we toil and we catch nothing. And in moments like that, what do we do? We look for the instructions of the one who has written this book. We look to the instructions of him who has said, I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In this third appearance of the resurrection body of Jesus, we learn that his words have the power to turn failure into success. But the second thing we do, we see here, what Jesus does is that his word examines the heart. After they fished, um, and after they come to the shore, after they have the breakfast, Jesus addressed Peter with a question. It was simply the question of verse 15, given three times. Verse 6, 15, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, this is an interesting dialogue after this breakfast. Jesus addresses only Simon. And Jesus addresses him with a question and then with some responsibilities. Now, we don't know what exactly this question meant. Um, is, it, is Jesus asking Peter, do you love me more than you love these men? Is Peter asking, or is he just asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than you love the fish or the fishing gear or the fishing industry? Or is Jesus asking Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Now, it's hard for us to know which comparison Jesus means here. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't know what was going on in Peter's heart. Do you think Jesus knew Peter's level of love? Of course, Peter says it three times. Lord, you know I love you. And the third time when when finally Jesus asks the same question the third time, G uh, Peter is hurt. Peter feels distrusted. And Peter just sort of gives up his hands. Lord, you know all things. And you know that I love you. Jesus knew Peter's level of love. So why does he ask it? Why is this question here? Well, I think there's at least two reasons why this question sort of comes at the end of this gospel. First, Jesus asks Peter about his love three times so that Peter might have the opportunity to examine his own heart. Remember how many times Peter denied the Lord? Three times. So for every denial, Jesus asks Peter this question. Peter do you love me? Peter gets frustrated even by the question of, do you love me? Well, friends, how gentle and gracious is our Lord? He could have come to Peter and said, Peter, how dare you? How could you do that to me? I have put so much confidence in you. How could you have denied me? But that's not what Jesus asks Peter. Jesus simply asks, Peter, do you love me? Friends, behind every failure, regardless of its shape, 
behind every failure that we have in our relationship with Christ, there's a failure, a deeper failure of our love for the Lord. So when Jesus asks Peter this question, it's a, it's a way in which, in which Jesus enables Peter to experience a healing from the denial that, Jesus, that, that Peter had done to Jesus. Examine your heart. But then there's a second reason I think Jesus is asking this question. It's not just to, to examine Peter's heart, but also to be a testimony to us that despite Peter's denial, the Lord restored Peter to ministry, to be an apostle, to be a shepherd of God's sheep. After Peter's responses, every time, the Lord follows up with a command three times. Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Feed my, or feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep and feed my sheep. This has certain important applications for those who are church leaders or either those who are serving the church vocationally as, as vocational pastors or those who are serving the church as, as non-vocational shepherds, as elders of the church, as those who, men whom, to whom God has entrusted the leadership of His church. Throughout the Bible, the key command God has given His people is that His people would love the Lord. That's how Moses began in Deuteronomy. That's how the passage which Sammy read earlier in our, in our service was when Joshua was approached by the, by the two tribes who were going to go back on the other side of the Jordan, Joshua gives him one big command. Be careful to love the Lord your God. And then when Joshua finishes his life and he's about to pass on the baton, he gives a number of instructions, and the, and the summit of those instructions is, be careful that you love the Lord your God. From the Old Testament until the end of the New, the New Testament, the big idea was, love the Lord your God. But if that was the desire of, of God for His people, what would be the one qualification that the shepherds of God's sheep would have to have? Love the Lord your God. And this love for the Lord shows up in the way we live, in the way we live our lives. That's why this, this requirement to love the Lord your God or love the Lord as a requirement to be a shepherd of God's sheep is not in contradiction with the requirements in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. Those are more of an outflow, a, a working out of this ultimate qualification. Love the Lord your God. This is what qualifies men to lead the church. Members of Parkers Baptist Church, when you look at, at our congregation, who are the men whom God has called to lead this church. I, God has called me as a vocational pastor, but there's other men who non-vocationally, non-officially help me in shepherding this church. Who are they? Well, the first thing we need to look at is who are the people who are so conspicuous in their love for the Lord? It's their love. It's our love that qualifies us. But then notice what is the responsibility of Peter? What is the responsibility of the shepherds God puts over his sheep? To feed the sheep and to take care of them. The primary responsibility of the shepherds is to feed God's sheep with God's word and to take care of the sheep. That's why, dear friends, in Acts chapter 6, 
when the apostles realized the increasing administrative uh, requirements uh, that the, 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 their, their situation demanded, the, the apostles got together and said, it is not right for us to put aside our focus on the word and prayer and, and, and minister to the tables. Not that ministering to the tables was not important by any means. It was. It was important for the unity of the church. Otherwise, grumblings and disunity and, and, and relationships would break, and that was not good. That was, that was doing more disadvantage for the, for the um, gospel. But the apostles get together and they realize we need a few men who would give special attention to this administrative need so that we could devote ourselves to the preaching of the word and to prayer. And that's where the deacons came up in, chap in Acts chapter 6. The deacons' primary responsibility is to make sure that the administrative needs of the church are so well taken care of that it does not disrupt the unity of the church. But the primary responsibility of the shepherds of the church is to feed God's people, God's word, and to take care of them. Friends, God's primary description of those whom he calls to lead a church is that they would feed God's sheep and lambs and care for them. But here's an indirect application. You may hear these words and say, okay, but I'm not a pastor I'm not even one that aspires or desires um, to be a shepherd of the church or act in some eldering role unofficially. Um, what does this have to do with me? Well, it does have to do with you in an indirect way, in the following ways. Two applications. Notice Jesus' words. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Whose sheep? Is Peter put over to, she to shepherd? It's God's. It's not Peter's. It's God's. Dear friend, this is incredibly comforting. If you are a child of God, God calls you his sheep. You belong to his pen of sheep. You belong to him. God cares for you, and he calls you his sheep. If you're a sheep belonging to God's fold, do you like feeding on God's word? Because God's greatest concern is to make sure that his sheep are fed. And if you're a sheep, do you like feeding on God's word? Friends, what characterizes true sheep is that they recognize the voice of the shepherd and they listen to him. Remember John 10? And it's not about simply following an invisible shepherd. No, Christ, before ascending to the Father, wants to assure us that even Peter, who failed so miserably, can be followed and trusted as Christ's under-shepherd. And he, along with the rest of the disciples, have been given the authority and the responsibility to care for the sheep and to feed them in flesh and blood experiences, concrete experiences. In other words... God, Christ, cares for his sheep by placing before them a flesh and blood shepherd who will care and feed the sheep in very concrete manifestations. There are Christians who don't want to be placed under the visible shepherds that Christ calls. They're sheep 
who do not want to be shepherded. They do not want the physical shepherds whom Christ calls. They just prefer sort of an invisible reality of shepherding. So there are sheep who just wander from place to place, and they don't want to deal with God's under-shepherds, whom he calls to feed his sheep. If, if you want to see how that is described in Scripture, go to Hebrews chapter 13, especially verse 17. It speaks about this danger that sheep might not want to put themselves under the care of visible under-shepherds whom Christ calls. Yet this account of Jesus restoring Peter's failure speaks directly to shepherds and indirectly to the sheep. Because Christ could never envision individual Christians living their Christian lives without submitting themselves to flesh and blood shepherds who represent Christ and who are given the primary task of feeding Christ's sheep with God's Word. So this passage addresses indirectly Wandering sheep who wander around from church to church but do not place themselves under the spiritual authority of any of the under-shepherds to which Christ has given to the church. Often they say, I I don't need to join a church. I don't need to submit myself to any human shepherd. Friends, if that is true, then Christ's restoration of Peter to ministry makes no sense. There's no need for it. If Christ could envision his sheep wandering around without physical shepherds who would actually care for them, there's no need why Jesus had to, has to restore Peter to his ministry. So the second point we see in Jesus' words is that his word calls us to examine our hearts. Do we love the Lord? And do we realize that it's the Lord who has called under shepherds and given them the responsibility to feed God's sheep with God's word. Last but not least, his word is a call to dying. After the command to feed Jesus' own sheep, Jesus speaks to Peter about his old age. Don't you love it? Peter cares about your old age. Peter, uh, Jesus cares about Peter's old age. Now, for Peter, it's a very unique situation. Because Jesus had for Peter some very specific instructions and some very specific experiences. Verse 18 says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, when you, were younger uh, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you, want, when you, do, where you not want to go. Then verse 19 says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Once this indication is made... Jesus has one more word for Peter. Follow me. Follow me? To that? To death? Most commentators think that this is possibly Jesus referring to the way to show how how Peter will end up dying. Namely, he will die crucified. To follow Jesus? In dying? Samuel, this is... This gospel you've been telling us is is written to reveal us life. Why is this gospel finishing on a call that apparently leads to death? Oh, dear friends, this is the amazing paradox of the gospel. 
This is the amazing news of Jesus. His word calls us to follow him. And in some ways, even we here in the West, even though we don't have the threat of physical persecution, there is a sense in which the call to follow Jesus is a call to die. Jesus said in, elsewhere in the Gospels, if anyone would follow me, he must first deny himself, pick up the cross, and then follow me. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter in a very real, concrete, physical way. But dear friends, what's amazing about this call is that even though Jesus calls Peter to follow him in his death in a very physical way, what enables Peter to answer this call is that the one who gives this call to follow in his death is the one who had just resurrected a few days ago. It's the one who has overcome death. So when Peter knows that Jesus has resurrected from the from the death, from, the, from death, there is no more question. Why not follow him in death? Because we know that he has overcome it. Oh, dear friend, the call of the gospel, the call of the gospel is a call to life. It's a call to eternal life with God. But what's unintuitive, what's against our intuition, is that this call to life is, first of all, a call to death. And it is as we go through this death with Christ that we will actually experience His resurrection. I can't wait for next week. Next week, next Sunday night, I hope you got the news that we will celebrate a baptism service outdoors for Rico and Vanessa. And the baptism service is nothing else but a visual manifestation that we're walking in with Christ in His death. As, as we go underwater, and when with him we rise up to a resurrected life. Friends, that's the power of the visible sign of a baptism. There's not magical, anything magical in it, but there's a power of saying we agree to follow the call of Christ to go into his death because we know that through it we go into his resurrection as well. Friends, that's the power of his word. It's a call to dying, but also knowing that's a call to living. Friends, that's how this gospel is ending. That's why John tells us these, this third appearance of Jesus. It's his words that turn failure into success. It's his word that calls us to examine our hearts. It's his word that calls us to dying and then promises us a life everlasting in his name. I pray, dear friend, and I want to ask you, in this gospel series that we have been through, Gospel of John, have you met Jesus? Have you experienced the power of His Word? Have you experienced the life that He has came to bring us? If you have not, I pray that you would do so today. I pray that you would want to respond to the grace of God who calls you to come to Christ, to follow Him. And if that's your desire, I would love to talk to you more after the end of the service. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we praise you in these moments because in amazing ways you have called us to life by calling us to follow in the death of Christ. We praise you for the power of the gospel to bring us salvation from being dead in our sins to giving us life everlasting and caring for us in such a way that this life everlasting manifests itself 
not only once in eternity after we die, but even here in flesh and blood experiences as we live the life of the body of Christ under the shepherds you have called to feed us and care for us. Oh, Lord, we pray. We pray that the power of the resurrection will continue to manifest itself in our lives, both individually and as your people, as your flock, so that others may come to know that power and call it on it, on call in the name of Christ and experience it. Father, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.